When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The real love story is the brothers, and so in a way that you would normally have romantic conflict in situations like this, instead we had the bromantic conflict. And that scene is one of my favorites. And I remember when we were even sitting around pitching it, I think there were some tears shed. I can't remember, but it's just... um in fact, I think, Neil, you pitched it and I cried because <laughs> I think you pretty much pitched it word for word. If I pitched it, then I definitely cried while pitching it, too. So it was probably a mess in there. A lot of tissues. Hello. Wow. Marty's voice is uh, huskier than I imagined. Damon. Sure picked a great night to get lost in the woods. Yeah, well... At least I'm starting to warm up. Which, in case you didn't know, is a bad sign. You gotta move. Okay. Just pick a direction, start walking. I can't. I can't even feel my legs. At this point, I can't tell if the tremors are from my withdrawal or from me freezing to death. Stefan, just get up. This is not how you are going to die, Stefan Salvatore. Alone in the wilderness, trapped in the frozen corpse of an alcoholic murderer. Uh, I don't know, seems kind of fitting to me. Come on, give me something to work with here. Day late and a dollar short. You suck at playing hero, brother. Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's binge of The Vampire Diaries. I'm your host, Sam Heifel, and joining me to talk all things season seven is executive producer Julie Pleck. Writers Melinda Shue Taylor and Neil Reynolds, and Caroline Forbes herself, Candace King. As with every episode, I will just put it out there at the beginning that we will mostly talk about season seven, but we reserve the right to go forward in time to look back. So there is a series wide spoiler alert on this baby. I've learned that I like to break the rules at the start of these podcast episodes because I'm going to break that rule right now because, because we have Candace. I do want to throw it back very briefly before we dive into season seven, because one of my favorite things when rewatching the show, especially with someone new is watching them react to Caroline in season one, because like, I know what's coming, but they don't. And I feel like Caroline just has such an amazing arc in those first seasons. Yes. But throughout the series as a whole, what was your experience with it? Did you know when you auditioned for this, like what was coming for this character? No, I don't think anyone knew what was coming at all. Um, I was just really excited, obviously, to have the opportunity to work with Kevin Williamson and Julie Pleck, number one, baseline. And then I was a WB kid. I grew up watching like everything on the WB that became the CW. So the idea of auditioning for a show that would be within that realm was exciting. Um, and then I thought Caroline was a blast season one. It blew my mind when people were like, she's so annoying or she's just so mean. I was like, I like her. I think she's fun and vulnerable and messy. He lives with his uncle up at the old Salvatore boarding house. He hasn't lived here since he was a kid. Military family, so they moved around a lot. He's a Gemini and his favorite color is blue. 
You got all of that in one day. Oh, please, I got all that between third and fourth period. We're planning a June wedding. One of the first things told to us as a cast was just to acknowledge the fact that we're all working on a vampire show and anyone can go at any time and no one should get too comfortable uh, in their chairs. And so I really didn't know which direction Caroline was going to go. And uh, I was very excited um, to see the opportunity of what she could become in season two and, and to ride that experience out with her. Oh, hey, Blondie. I let you out. I remember. What do you remember? I remember how you manipulated me. You pushed me around, abused me, erased my memories, fed on me. You're crazy. Well, the memories have been coming back in pieces. You can't remember. It's impossible. I mean, unless you were becoming a... I have a message from Catherine. She said, game on. Wait. Obviously, this is the first season without Nina. And so you all, you knew her contract was ending. You knew she was going to leave the show. Was there a discussion of like, do we move on? Like, do we even attempt this without her? Or was it a kind of an obvious like, yeah, that could be fun? Yeah, I think that... I mean, Nina was really, really upfront from the beginning, you know, when they started talking about season six, which they usually do a year or so prior, you know, she's like, I don't think I want to do more than six. And so in our heads, we always sort of knew that there would come that time where she could and probably would say no to continuing. And so I feel like none of us felt done. And I feel like none of the rest of the cast felt done. And certainly the fans didn't seem to want us to be done. So we just were like, all right, well, it's, it's kind of a challenge. I mean, like we've talked about this before, writing Elena, but Elena's the hardest character to write in, in the show because the heroine is always the hardest character to write in any show because as much as you want them to be fallible and, um, and, and layered and nuanced, inevitably you're always just combating the boring heroine problem. So I think there were part of us as writers, as much as we love Nina and Elena, that were like, ooh, a challenge, you know, let's see what we can do. And then we thought, well, finally, I thought the shipper in my heart was like, finally, I get to get Stefan and Caroline. (laughs) Like, finally, finally. (laughs) Um, And then Candace Candace threw the funny loop into that, um, into that plan. (laughs) Uh, yes yes uh we will we will get to that for sure but first i want to start for melinda and for neil and for julie just for writers as you all sit down to like break season seven because you are missing elena and you're adding this flash forward element to it like there's a very different vibe to season seven in a lot of ways did breaking it feel different for you all in terms of like shifting a little bit for the show Yes. I mean, it's a short answer. <laughs> we um, we like the challenge of something that was a little format kind of spin of flash forwards. And, and those became really fun to to puzzle out kind of like, what's the thing that's relevant to the present day story? You know, how is it really important to see something that happens three years from now? And we also had to kind of figure out how those things strung together if you were to watch that show by itself, you know, sequentially, what are the flash forwards telling us? And how does that, you know, we can't get to this character moment till later, but we have to inform about the character model that's happening three years before. 
You know, I mean, Neil, what do you remember this time? I remember that the the format challenges that we bit off aside, we did spend a lot of time thinking about Damon in the absence of Elena and how to both honor, you know, the Sleeping Beauty spell and give him a primary heated sort of electric relationship. And I remember that the long arc of the season was actually a Damon and Bonnie season and that it starts Mm -hmm. out with this really horrible betrayal (laughs) where he considers for a fleeting moment what would it be like to lose Bonnie to get Elena back? So, which way do you want to go? Should we turn around? Or should we go straight? Maybe go left here. And then the season moves him to the, you know, to be Bonnie's salvation by the end of it. And that, to me, is such a classic uh, character arc structure that even though there are all these, like, layers of you know mythology and you know jumping around in front of it like it was actually pretty easy to identify off of season six that it's like this is a damon and bonnie season it's always about the brothers but -hmm. in the absence of elena like damon was framework um for how the season would be structured and stefan and caroline had the exact same sort of macro level discussion around it i remember that um, we had spent a couple weeks at the beginning of the season breaking a lot of the big story arcs. And then I went off over to the originals room and I came back and Caroline Dries was like, the season's boring. I hate everything. There's not enough, there's not enough story here. And she's like, we need to, we need something new. We need a new framing device. And she pitched the flash forwards and my heart sank. Cause I'm like, I love storytelling and I love creative and complicated storyline. And I suck at math storylines where you have to like, <laughs> build the pieces to get to the thing. It's like, I can't write a heist story to save my life either. And I thought, well, this is the moment where I have to realize that I don't know how to do this and never will know how to do this. And I just have to trust that Dreezy knows how to like lead the train on this. And thankfully we had a bunch of really great, like gadget brains in our room, story gadget brains. Like, you know, all of you (laughs) were so much better at it than I ever will be. And so you guys, you guys managed to like, pull it through thank god <laughs> well, seriously, i would say of julia that she's always the one who comes in and is like yeah but what's the thing that makes makes my heart break you know what's the thing where i'm like the teenage me think that's the one for me that's my soulmate you know and it's so useful as a writer going forward from the show to just come back to those very visceral emotions and the things that make you lie awake at night i mean talking about like bonnie and damon the scene where she like says goodbye before he's about to desiccate himself and then he's still like damon's done a lot of bad things but the fact that he like still got in that coffin after that tearful goodbye was is one of the most like devastating moments to me that scene is so powerful you mentioned we have stefan and caroline they're finally they're going on their first date but then you all bring in with the heretics the big villain of the season you bring in Valerie and I'm very interested, Melinda, I know you wrote kind of the episode that gave like their little, their little mm-hmm. flashback love story. What was it about her kind of tying into Stefan's life and being that first love that really kind of intrigued you all about that story? Well, we always love um, the thing that happens before the story, you know, you know, and sort of like what happened to Stefan when he was like a 16 year old and Paul Wesley was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to play a 16 year old. He's very humble. <laughs> but he totally pulled it off in that moment of like, Oh, I think she's here. Oh, she's not, you know? And and I think it's so relatable that thing of you, you think you're being stood up and, and yes, you are being stood up. That's happened to you or 
or the the kind of the way your heart beats and then it sinks again. But um, we wanted a, a thing that was kind of both pure, but also fiery. You know, I remember how they filmed that love scene where he's sort of undressing her. And then as a writer, it's always very humbling when the costume designer is kind of like, I know you think this is how corsets work, but it's actually not. <laughs> <laughs> and then you kind of have to engineer the physics of what it's actually like to undress a woman in 1860, whatever. And, um, you know, we, I, I think we found a great actress was really able to connect with this kind of innocence but also this promise of a thing that never happened and it was so sad when we kind of came up with this idea that he'd had a child and julian you know killed the child and and it was her kind of formative tragedy and i don't know we just we love epic tragedy <laughs> when in doubt epic tragedy always works mm-hmm. candace for you though you mentioned like I remember we talked about in season four, we talked about what a big deal it is for an actor to want to cut their hair on a show. And like, that's a big deal. When you know you're pregnant, were you at all like nervous to tell like Julian company that you were pregnant? I was very nervous. I also felt very strongly for me personally that I just wanted to wait regardless. Like I, I did wait until I was, you know, past my first trimester. Um, which made me even more nervous because like that really goes into the timeline of right when we were starting to film. Um, but yes, I was very nervous to make that call um, being like the first female actress to be uh, pregnant and needing to film an entire season of television and uh, throw that kind of uh, curveball at the writers. So, uh, but it was met with support and excitement <laughs> and also, oh my God, <laughs> okay, what are we going to do? It's going to be great, but what are we going to do? Because, <laughs> you know, you always, I always love seeing if shows, you always have the option of the like, you know, conveniently placed lamp or whatever, and then you don't write in the pregnancy. Obviously, you all went the other route. What kind of went into <laughs> that decision for you all? I'm curious to hear what you guys The word lamp did come up. <laughs> I, I, I remember it so vividly, but I totally want to hear what it was like for Neil and Melinda when I walked into the room. I think I, I remember making the strong argument. Um, I came around, but to me at the beginning, it was like, okay, like, I don't care about the logistics of shooting the pregnancy because I had never done that before. And everyone who had been doing this for longer was like, you don't want to try to not show something that has to be shown, you know, in any master shot, in any coverage. Like there was a series of logistics that that I think Julie came in with um, very concerned about that I had no idea about. But I was in the camp of like, well our mythology does not support a vampire pregnancy. (laughs) And uh, we actually told a lot of story about how vampires can't get pregnant. Like that was kind of Elena's whole thing Um, for a, for a time, for a time, but our mythology, you know, if you're binging the show, you see that our mythology expands and contracts to fit the needs of the season And um, I actually think that we did have one avenue in mind, which was the loss of Joe and the the Gemini Coven. We had always sort of left that hanging on instinct. It's like, what was there some way that that wasn't like this horrifying triple tragedy? It was just just a single tragedy, like Vampire Diaries (laughs) tends to do so often. So that was my entry point to it. And I don't remember a lot of the rest. I don't remember, you know, what sold me on the storyline other than 
I think, a passionate argument that it would make good, interesting story. Yeah, yeah. I think that we were kind of like, how does Caroline feel about being, you know, an unwilling participant at first in this pregnancy? Or just kind of like, it happens to her. It's not something she had to say. Yet. And we talked a mm-hmm. lot about that and how important it was for us to feel as an audience and as a writer and as the cast, like, we embrace this as a good thing. So a lot of the conversations were really about that. Like, how do you get your head and your heart around this? Like, this thing happened to my body, which now I'm going to be on board with because, you know, I love these people around me and I'm, I'm all about keeping these kids alive. At the same time, it wasn't something I chose. It wasn't something I had in mind for myself. And, um, you know, what does that do to kind of your psychology and your emotions of the moment? So we talked a lot about that part of it. No possible. What's not possible? The babies. They're here. Where? Huh? Floating in a raft in the Pacific Ocean somewhere? Look at the map. Your spell didn't work. They're not on the map, Caroline. They're inside of you. You know, when I got the call, I was a couple weeks in the story, and it was Candace and Stefan, you know, and leading lady, and it's time. It's going to be so hot and so sexy, and naked and she called and she's like I have news and I'm pregnant and I went oh my god did I think you were fucking with me I think I might have thought you were pranking me I'm not sure you said you had a dream you said that oh, you had, had a dream, dream that like I was pregnant <laughs> I'd had a dream and you were like yeah it was just a lot of like ah like a lot of noises and just like which now I understand like how much work had been done and how many episodes had been written because I told you literally the week before Comic-Con, I think. I mean, it was right before we were going back to film is when it timed out that I was in um, a more comfortable place to share the news on a, on a bigger scale. Melinda, to what you're talking about, like it's kind of happening to you. And, you know, I, there was a lot of that where I just was trying to navigate being so excited to be at the job that I love. But now under this whole new pretense of like, well, now I can't really do stunts the way that I would normally do stunts, but I want to be a team player. And 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 then my body's changing. And, and sometimes I looked very pregnant and other times my belly would disappear and I'd be like supposed to be looking pregnant. It was just a very bizarre experience to say the least. I can't remember because we had, because of the tragedy of the twins and Joe dying and one in looking for a story for Alaric for the season, we had separately come up with the story of the woman who knocks on his door and is like, I think I'm pregnant with your babies and him being like, I don't think so. She's like, no, actually like, like your actual babies. And so we'd kind of cooked that story up as a, can we really go down that road? That's pretty crazy. Like womb transfer, magical uterine transfer, you know, like we're already like, mm, I don't know. And I can't remember if it was Drees or, or, or Brian or somebody. I like, I wish I could decide to give the credit to, but somehow the idea came up that we take Caroline and put her in that storyline. And so I'd already called Peter Roth and Mark Pedowitz, you know, the bosses to tell him that Candace was pregnant. And I called him back and I said, so I'm about to pitch you the most bananas thing you will ever hear me pitch you. <laughs> and I went into the whole pitch about the magical, like embryonic transfer and the, the vampire who couldn't get pregnant, who's having babies. And I think it was Mark Petto. It's being like, Julie, believe it or not, that is not nearly the most bananas thing you've ever pitched me. And I was like, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> and we're fine. And uh, and then that shaped 
I mean, I always laugh and we've said this before, Sam, to you, it's like that decision to play into the pregnancy, to give birth to the Saltzman twins, to have Lizzie and Josie become part of the narrative while hope was existing in the other narrative of the originals. That is why legacies exists hundred percent. So mm-hmm. Candace's beautiful life miracle gave us um, a whole other show. <laughs> I'm always amazed too in rewatching it. There was like a little line at some point that was talking about some birthday party or something, but it was like, Lizzie got mad and Josie cried. And I was like, oh, that still fully fits their characters, like in legacies, <laughs> however many years later. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. That's amazing. So let's talk about the Phoenix Stone. The idea is that something you all made up completely on your own? Did it, is that like a thing somewhere that you all found? How did that kind of come about? I feel like that was a Dre's idea. I think that she was thinking, what is Alar going to do when he's so grief stricken? And this is how Dre's mind works in a good way. Naturally, you to resurrect the person, you know, <laughs> you like look for a mystical object that will give you the power of life and death. And we'll fix it that way, you know, um, instead of like going to therapy or something. <laughs> and that became this thing where, you know, next thing you know, we've got a cool prop and we're in Europe and we're looking at, um, you know, different places to go for answers about this thing. And um, I don't remember when it came about that we decided that souls were trapped inside it and that there was a woman with a sword <laughs> collecting them <laughs> like you do. You know, I mean, Neil, what do you remember? <laughs> I just literally had to Google Phoenix Stone, by the way. That is how mushy my brain. I'm like, Phoenix Stone. I Google it. I'm like, oh, yeah, you mean the entire launching point of the whole villain mythology for the season? Oh, that, Phoenix Stone. Yeah. Oh, my God. Different from the Moonstone. Yes, no. very, very different. Sorry, two words. you were about to you were about to be much smarter than I was. <laughs> Look, I I had to do a wiki a wiki. Uh, it's not wiki anymore. It's fandom.com. But the Vampire Diaries wiki page is very helpful in reminding me because we churned through so much in twenty two yeah. episodes. But I remember it was about the huntress because the flash forwards were like. Okay, someone's hunting them, mystery character. And like we do, we sort of introduce the villain before we cast them and we actually put them on screen. What are they after? And, you know, what's the base, what's the new threat um, and the new promise of our mythologies that we can bring the dead back to life? But like, there's always consequences. So I sort of remember Reyna's character who was the Phoenix sword bearer, the huntress, Mm -hmm. she was, that all kind of came out of who she was. Um, And then I think we detached the Phoenix stone and gave it to Alaric in tandem to larger discussions about who the first villain was after the heretic era. I just remember it begat, the Phoenix stone begat my favorite episode, which was the one you wrote that I directed, Neil, the the Paul Wesley, Stefan Alter universe. Oh yeah, yeah. Human for oh, a day. For, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because he was stuck in stuck the, in the body of Marty yeah. Hammond. Marty. <laughs> was Marty that when he was a paramedic? The, yes. Yeah. Paramedic. Yeah. No, no, no. Para, paramedic was Tom. That was oh, an Tom earlier too. Yeah. Season. Sorry. No, Marty. he was with he was with the paramedics. He was being treated by paramedics as as Marty. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I Sorry. Think, yes. I think Mar- wasn't Marty a detoxing alcoholic who had just crashed yes. a bus? <laughs> yep. <laughs> My yes. God. Poor guy. <laughs> what a day. Okay, I guess it's great, you know. <laughs> 
I do want to talk about that episode, though, because I mean, I think, Julie, I think I've talked to you about this, but like that the brother phone call in that episode when Stefan is in the snow and Damon's driving to him and he like Stefan finally gets to say, like, I don't believe you're going to save me. You want to know why this is so hard? Because Marty Hammond is a total train wreck. Because eventually I'm not going to be able to go on. That happens. I don't believe you'll be there. But the entire tone of that episode and rewatching it, it's so it's such a different episode for Vampire Diaries. Like it always stands out in my mind. It's just a very different hour. And so like I'm very interested just Neil in writing it and Julian directing it. Like when you were crafting it, I mean, did you have were you having those kind of feelings was that intentional of like this is going to be a very different episode of vampire diaries i think so i think that i mean we knew julie that you were directing it and so we had the advantage of and this is not always the case in the way that our show was structured but we got to sort of sit in a room together and just make an episode that we we're really excited about from story break all the way through Like, I think that it was meant to be self-contained because we knew that Julie would be shooting it. And so we'd be, basically the mythology would need to start moving again in the following episode. And we, you know, the next chapter would really start to pick up the end season run. And it was, it was episode 17 that I think we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it sits in this nice place in the season where we built a lot, but we can take a breath before barreling towards the end too. And I just remember it being like a complicated setup for a simple execution. It was just a really simple story about the brothers' history mm-hmm. and a little insight into their childhoods that like we, you know, hadn't really seen before. Yeah, and I think it was like the the byproduct of, you know, of losing Elena from their from their world. You have to ask yourself, like, what's the real love story? Mm-hmm. And the real love story is the brothers. Mm-hmm. And so in a way that you would normally have um romantic conflict in situations like this, instead we had the the um the bromantic conflict and that scene is one of my favorites and I remember when we were even sitting around pitching it I think there were some tears shed I can't remember but it's just um in fact I think Neil you pitched it and I cried because <laughs> I think you pretty much pitched it word for word if I pitched it then I definitely cried while pitching yes. it too so that's yes. just it's just a it was probably a mess in there. A lot of tissues. <laughs> Don't believe Neil because Neil, uh, like the height of drama emotion, this is like virtually indistinguishable from what you're seeing right now. Yes. Like that's always when the writer knows they have the win is when they pitch and I cry. I, I cry in my own pitches all the time, but that's, that's different. Um, <laughs> but I just remember Neil, like you and I were supposed to write that together and I was busy as I often ended up being. And so you wrote the first draft and in my head, as I sat down to read it, I'm like, Oh, this is great. Cause he did all the hard work and then I'll come in and I'll, you know, I'll polish it up and I'll, and I'll do my thing. And then I read it and I emailed you and I'm like, this is perfect. Like you just wrote the perfect episode and I am no longer co-writing it with you because it's now yours. And, and you, you just crushed it. I I was so moved by it because it's a powerful it was a powerful episode. It had great stuff for Paul, you know, so, and Paul got so excited about that episode. Mm-hmm. He was so invested in it because, you know, after seven years of Stefan, like, you know, yeah. I mean, he was over Stefan by like season 
one and a half, but you know, seven years later to get to, you know, to get dirty and to be human and to be running through the woods and handcuffs and to be in the side of a road dying bloody. And like, you know, just like playing a whole different character. He was so invested and it was really fun to work with him in that way. In that episode too, to see him excited and invigorated mm-hmm. about the show again. I remember the storyline of that episode too. Isn't she chasing the Aurora Borealis across planets and dimensions or something? I loved it. Is that the one? Yeah, because that's where she finally comes to face to face with uh, with the mom. Or is that the previous? Uh, that's so Candace's. That, so that's gotta no, be that's, the, that's the first episode I directed. Yeah, that's the um, the Sheriff Forbes funeral episode when Bonnie is. Oh, yeah. Oh. 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 Yeah, yeah, that one. That, I mean, was, that was mm. that was a good one. Okay, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna take that opportunity to jump to that episode really quickly because Candace, that episode marked. The second time you sang on the show, but a a very different performance from the first time. What was your reaction? I assume Julie brought that to you and was like, would you like to sing? How did that kind of come about? Um, My reaction was, why do I have to do this again? (laughs) Um, It is very scary. Um, And so we did, we sang, I sang in season one. And then when Caroline's humanity was turned off, she Mm -hmm. um, sang again. Oh, right. I think there was like an audition and karaoke and then the funeral. And then I just and it was literally like in a packed church with a bunch of extras and then the whole cast in the front row with just me singing. Go in peace. Go in kindness. Go in love, go in faith, leave the day, day behind us, day is done, go in grace. Let us go into the dark, not afraid, not alone, let us hold. By some good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. I was so tired, and I just was like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is my nightmare!" Like, I my voice shook. Like, I I break out. I'm like sweating thinking about it. I'll probably be bright red in two seconds. Um, but it's I like that I that I did it, and it's there. And I, and what's honestly that whole arc um, for Sheriff Forbes and Caroline losing her mother to glioblastoma was huge. I still have a lot of people that come up to me and and just say that that storyline got them through, whether it was a parent or a family member or a personal friend who uh, who passed from from that cancer mm-hmm. or any cancer. And so, um, so I know how important that arc and that moment in particular is to so many people to watch the show. So to be a part of it was like mm-hmm. on the receiving end of that is really powerful. Um, but yeah, I don't need to sing any, but I was very done when it was like the singing was over. <laughs> Such a waste. It makes me nervous. Unless I'm in a karaoke bar with a lot of cocktails in me. It's just, you know, I don't know. I get a little nervous. So sad. So sad. I would write you singing all day, every day. It would be so happy. No. <laughs> yeah. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. 
Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Now back to the show. I want to get back to the Phoenix Stone of it all because there are two really kind of Phoenix Stone central episodes that, Neil, you wrote the first one, and then Melinda, you wrote the one right after, which is where we actually go, we see inside of it, right? We follow Damon to kind of his version of hell, and then the next episode is very much so dealing with the effects when he he thinks he kills Elena. There's all, He, like, really puts Tyler in a coma, which like, poor Tyler. But <laughs> my biggest thing I remember when watching it was, oh, I would have loved to have heard the discussions of like, what what is Damon's hell versus what is Stefan's hell? And because the Phoenix Stone ultimately is trying to teach them a lesson, right? And Damon's ends up being about his mom, Stefan's ends up being about Damon. But what kind of were the discussions for you all of like, yeah, like, we have this thing, we have to put them in hell. What do their hells look like? Yeah, I feel like you pitched the Civil War thing, which I loved. I, I loved that episode. Um, and for the drowning thing with Stefan, it was, you know, starts as a metaphor, ends up as a hundred and something gallon tank or however many thousands of gallons of water they built. Because I was like, well, it won't be this because we could never build a tank to do this. And then next thing I know, they're building a tank with a window and tires and guys. <laughs> season seven, baby. Really season seven, Pascal was like, what so do you good. need? <laughs> I know. So we can build it. <laughs> I mean, that Civil War episode, though, Neil, my God, that might be one of our best, in my opinion. Well, that was a collaboration with um, Holly Bricks, who was the other writer on that. And I can't remember who um, or when or collectively how we decided to do a Groundhog Day episode, but the structure is sort of perennial. And when you're talking about how do you represent hell, which I think there's a reason for it, which is that it, the repetition and the grind of it is fun. It sort of traps the character in and makes them ask the question, why is this happening? Why this day? Like of all the days, this doesn't register on like, you know, my, my wound scale. But then when you keep really pushing that over, 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 then it just becomes a therapy episode. And you're just mm -hmm. trying to get to the core or the, you know, the deeper trauma. And at that point in the season, it had to be about Lily. Because I think I think Damon had like failed to say goodbye to her as she was dying. And so, you know, at that point in the season, it couldn't really be about Elena. You know, we we had sort of like our consciousness mm -hmm. had started to drift away from it. Um, it's always about Stefan, but we sort of knew that Stefan was going to be about Damon. So we just we went into some Damon mommy issues and then just kind of <laughs> wrapped it in a very dynamic um, Civil War shell. I'm gonna die knowing my own son hates me. Yes, he does. All the departments so pulled together and just knocked it out of the park on that one. Just like they, they were excited too because it was different for them. But I mean, they put on a battlefield. Like they created yeah. the war kind of simulation, which was so great. And so, you know, 
engaging and, and, you know, kind of awful, but also wonderful because we got to see the inner Damon of before, you know, and, and I think that's something that's always fascinating when you know characters so well as their vampire selves and Damon's, you know, the one who says for me to know and you to dot, 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 like he's that guy <laughs> when we meet him. But in the Civil War, he was a guy. He, he thought he was doing the right thing, you know, and he had this very tortured day. And I remember like, you know, in season one, when, because in the books, he was, he was a Confederate soldier, right? And so we're like, all right, honor the books, make mm-hmm. him a Confederate soldier, but he's a deserted soldier. And we sort of like gave two mm-hmm. seconds of lip service to that in the in the first season. And then this was our sort of way of like telling the story of, of ultimately how he ended up no longer a Confederate soldier. But yeah, no, Deb Chow, Deb Chow really crushed that. And, and Darren Janae, oh my gosh. Darren Janae shot it and Derek oh, Sto- yeah. Kara Stover built it. And I mean, my God, it was just a, a feat. You know, when you do a show that's like that long, when you see a, when you write a good episode, when you see a good episode come together, you you have almost like a, a greater sense of pride in a good episode in season seven than you do in season one, because they get harder and harder and harder to make great at a certain point. So that one was special. Candace, for you, I want to get to, because... This is a character at this point you've played for seven years. But when they introduce something like a time jump and suddenly Caroline, it's three years into the future, which in her lifetime is not many. But for most people, three years is a decent amount of time. Obviously, her life is very different in three years. What was it like for you to get to play? Like, did you feel in a way, did you kind of have to sit down and think, okay, in what ways is she different? Obviously, she's a mom now. Do you kind of feel like you were like recrafting the character even a little bit? I think that there were parallels that kind of caught up to themselves. Like I, you know, I, my husband and I were married. I had, I have two stepdaughters. I'd already been kind of in a new role within my own life. I was obviously about to give birth to my first child. And I did more. What I was concerned about was I spent most of the season being pregnant with twins, Caroline being pregnant with twins, but I only had one baby so I never looked pregnant enough. So I'd have to wear a fake belly over my real belly to look more pregnant and the Spanx and the mic pack and the bladder of a pregnant woman. And, and then all of a sudden, right before I was leaving for maternity leave, it was like, we're jumping three years in the future. And I was at like my most <laughs> pregnant. And I was like, God, like literally this is the, like the most pregnant, the biggest I'll be. And now we're jumping three years in the future. Um, <laughs> So that's where um, my head was at. But I, I was really excited to kind of see this new grown-up maternal mama bear version of Caroline that I always think she had within her, um, just or that she kind of developed within her that you would see within her friendships and, and also her relationships that she had. It is all a blur from sleepless nights after that. But, um, but I was ready. I was excited that she was kind of stepping into those shoes. And that we would explore yeah. that with the kids as well and see them in the future. You got to work with adorable little girl. There are two little hands like siphoning the armory. And that is still one of them. It's so cute. I just, it's adorable. They were great. I also feel like we, we have to talk about Matt because in terms of like character, mm-hmm. anytime Matt showed up in the season, I was always like, what's he doing? You know, has like, is he... Suddenly it's like he's hating vampires. He has this beautiful love story with Penny. All these things are happening. I realized, Julie, one question I've never asked, because obviously like Matt is the human, right? Like Matt makes it. Was killing Matt ever on the table? 
<laughs> I would like you, after we answer this question, to ask it again when Brett Matthews comes for season eight. <laughs> Brett Matthews' okay. face just flashes. Every in front of me. day, every day. <laughs> Brett Matthews pitched that every day. <laughs> I had this thing about Matt Donovan. <laughs> That in a show that was just nothing but endless tragedy and death, that that sort of like dopey cute guy from down the block, the human should just be allowed to survive. And that was my thing. He was like the Xander to me. I'm like, he's just, you can't kill Matt Donovan. And I heard so many pitches that ended with, and Matt Donovan dies that I think we put it into <laughs> what was that fake script page we wrote? Do you remember that? Like the, um, uh, it was for, Oh, it was for the rap for the yearbook, yeah, for the yearbook with the writers wrote like fake script pages. And it's possible that even and Matt Donovan dies is in there somewhere. It just became like a, a running joke. And, and hilariously, Brett literally on legacies still to this day, it was like, and then Matt Donovan dies because Matt, Donovan guessed it like legacy. So, um, you know, one day. <laughs> Who was for you all though? Like you, Julie, you mentioned Elena being a really difficult character to write in previous seasons. Who was the most difficult character to write in season seven? That's a good question. I mean, Damon had a ton of good stuff. Season seven was one of those years, probably Tyler. I mean, I, I feel like we were constantly struggling with Tyler through no fault of Trevino because he's so great as Tyler, but like we always kind of had a hard time. Like he, he had had a nice run in season six with Penelope with um, uh, Luke and um, mm-hmm. Penelope is the actress. Liv, Liv. Thank you. Liv. And, um, and, and five into six. And so he was, he'd had a nice run and every time a character comes out of a really good run, then you're sort of like, now what do you do? And I feel like that was, that was a struggle. Mm. But otherwise, like it was a good, it, the good thing about season seven was because everything was fresh because it didn't have to be centered around Elena. We got to just exercise a new like set of writer muscles and story muscles in spite of Dreezy deciding it was all terrible and then we needed to add <laughs> the flash words. Like I felt like there was, it wasn't easy, but at least there was like an, a, a never ending story supply, whether the stories are good or not, you know, that's subjective, but feel like the the concepts were less difficult to come up with in season seven and the characters were less difficult to service but i might be wrong about that no i remember it being a lot of fun and the heretics were oh, like this so whole cast of characters you know they all had a, kind of a similar power if you will but they they had such their own problems and dynamics within the group and then enzo you know was such a fun addition to that because we got to see his kind of relationship to all of them and um annie Wershing, who played mom so Lily, right she was great mm-hmm. She's great. She she would add these things where, um, you know, just because she was so in the moment, there was a thing that was written as an act out where she's just like, um, she realizes that the Ascendant has been stolen, I think is what happened, and and that Enzo maybe maybe tricked her into, like, letting her guard down for a minute, and she tells him to get out. And she gives him such a face. I mean, (laughs) what a look she gave him for the act out that on set, I was like, let's add in vamp veins. Like she's so pissed right now. That's awesome. Like we can make this, we don't need the line. We just like have her, you know, (laughs) so it's a great to have her on the show. Yeah. That was actually fun. The heretics were, were a fun, 
uh, story engine too, because and, and the, the cast was really fun, like Todd Lassens and Annie and and Liz and 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 Scarlett and Teresa. They were fun, you know, yeah. and um, they brought this like fun life into the show of like you know having a good time and being buddies and hanging out with each other. And you know, everybody was over each other. I think by then, and it was just like for us, it was nice to see like excited people, excited co- to come to work and, and enjoy themselves. And, and Mary Louise and Nora, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how it mm-hmm. took us seven years to have, um, you know, to have a queer relationship on our show that was substantial like that. But, you know, finally we did get to do it and um, it, that was nice to play. And um, I don't know, it's, it was a fun, there was fun stuff that season. Bonnie and Enzo is a, one of my, oh, I love Bonnie and Enzo. They're so, did that come about? Was that like a on-screen chemistry? We have to write this. Like, where did the idea for? Do people say Benzo? Benzo come from? <laughs> did we say that? That's right. Oh my god. Um, I mean, I think it was at a certain point. It's kind of like who can we pair up? Who has sure. it? And what would make sense? But also, it made sense for the narrative. And they had great chemistry, and it was fun to see them start out. You know, kind of. Uh, very antagonistic, and then end up in this really wonderful place. It's very kind of unconditional, delightful relationship, and and then of course we killed him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's how it goes. Um, I love that. That's one of my favorite couples in the whole show is Bonnie and Enzo, and I think that there was something so like I was always the one, which you know has gotten me yelled at a lot over the years, but I just fundamentally believed that Bonnie, the Bonnie we met in season one. It would never date a vampire, you know, because like, you know, everyone always wanted Bonnie and Damon to get together because of the books. And I was in my head, like Damon is such an asshole and has done so many terrible things. And why would Bonnie just, why would Bonnie ever like this Bonnie who's like so pure, why would she ever love Damon? And then finally I was able to like, in my head, get Damon to a place where he was worth being loved by Bonnie in a friendship way. And, and building that best friendship was really, really, really great. And I loved that. And so once, once like Damon and Bonnie could be sort of besties after their prison world experience, then it sort of felt like, okay, Bonnie can fall in love with the right vampire, you know? Loosen up your hands and uh... Yeah, now back to the one chord. There you go. That's it. And Enzo's the right vampire, you know? I mean, he was a good one. He was a good... He was a good man in his way. And and I felt like that... That that felt more in character with what she would have wanted, you know, for herself. Yeah. So I loved that one. And yes, we killed him because that's <laughs> just what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> Epic tragedy. Did Malarkey, Malarkey played and sang on the show a little bit too, right? Or did bit, he at yeah. least played guitar on the show, right? I just remember it was like, oh, what a serenade. Yeah. 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 Well, we mentioned that this is really like the season of Stefan and Caroline. Like they finally go on their first date. They're finally on the same page about their feelings. Candace, in your experience, which are Steriline or Claroline fans louder in your life? <laughs> Claroline fans are way louder, always. <laughs> always. Am I allowed to ask you yeah. on, on live camera 
where you stood on Claireline, or am I just asking for trouble? We've talked about it a lot, yeah. This has been a constant thing in all these little sessions. Yeah, it's so funny. I never understood it. Like, I knew that, the, but I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I love working with Joseph Morgan, but it just took off in a way that I think even as the writers, like you guys were, we were all surprised. Um, it became its like own like Twitter thing. And so, um, and I love that everyone kind of just got like little samples of it um, throughout, you know, the years. Um, but I, I liked the slow burn of Caroline and Stefan. Like when I watch TV, those mm-hmm. are the kind of like slow burn relationships that, um, that I am usually rooting for. But I love, but I just thought it was so funny. Yeah. Still, to every, it's always like Caroline, Caroline, Caroline all the time. Yeah. I hear that word a lot. <laughs> what a word. <laughs> I also personally think Tyler and Caroline don't get enough credit because I loved that relationship too. I I do remember though, when, when the pregnancy storyline came about, the question was like, well, who, who, who is is it? Because Caroline had already been (laughs) dating every single person. So like it literally went, came down to Alaric and Caroline at the end. Uh, Yeah. Which was so funny. (laughs) Yeah, so because I always forget that Trevino and my characters dated and that like all, all the I'm like, oh, yeah, it's usually like fans or fan conventions that'll be like. And then when this relationship with Caroline, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot that one, too. That was a whole chapter. But yes, just a lot of love. No, <laughs> That's all your fault, Candace, because you just yeah. you're just one of those actors that has chemistry with everybody. You literally have your face just like exudes chemistry with whoever you're acting against. And so when as writers, you see that on the screen, you're like, oh, look, that's so, they have such chemistry. And then you write to that and then you, then you destroy that relationship because that's what we do. And then you like, you know, put her in a random scene with a random character mm-hmm. and then, Oh, look at all that chemistry. And then there's more there. And it, it's, it was always fun to give Caroline those relationships because like the mm-hmm. character just blossoms um with the like the the first crush the first kiss the first blush of new potential and all that yeah um, <laughs> but yeah she did she did get around no no shame no shame Neil, isn't this the season where like maybe it was six where like all the where was the throwing caroline over the shoulder and locking her in the trunk of the car and taking her to the hotel room but it was not a trunk of a car because that was pitched to me like because i was like seven months pregnant and it was like, so here's the deal. We're going to put you in a car, but there will be holes in it so you can breathe. And I literally have pictures of how pregnant I am at this point with like blood down my face and a knife, fake knife in my belly. And and um, and I was like, I don't know about a trunk of a car. And they're like, OK, well, what about a wardrobe case? So I was locked in like a wardrobe case with my hands tied and my mouth gagged and then just like. Being like, well, just another day at the office. Just very pregnant. <laughs> I just remember it was about season <laughs> six or seven that the conversations about the, the conversations that are so prevalent today, like you know, in in terms of a woman's agency and and what's misogynistic and what's toxic and what's rapey and like all those things started coming up in the writer's room fairly regularly. And, and it was like so enlightening because I literally would sit there and be like, oh my God, everything that we've done leading up to this moment is so problematic. And yet like was okay when we started, but like 
I don't know if this show is going to hold up over time because it's so problematic. And then I would say to the room, I'm like, if we can't write like gothic bodice ripping heat and romance, like the, like we used to in the Harlequins, like, I think we're all out of a job. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do it. And it was like a big shift because you guys are all super, super sensitive and in all the best ways about that. And it took me so long to catch up to it because I just, you know, I, when we started the show, it was like 50 shades of gray was all the thing. And twilight where like Bella's basically just a, you know, sort of a passive instrument of Edward's desires and like all those things, like in the beginning, not forever. Um, don't yell, don't yell at me. Um, <laughs> And everything like Damon, Damon and Caroline in those early episodes, you know, uh, mm. all of it was so, 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 so ultimately not good. <laughs> and, and I laugh only because what mm. else are you supposed to do? But, um, but yeah, the, the, those conversations were really, really powerful because yeah, Neil, you can elaborate. I, well, I remember now that this center, this particular, <laughs> there were multiple times that Caroline Forbes was abducted <laughs> and tied up, I think in this season, yes. <laughs> because this one centered around Stefan doing it as a pseudo romantic, like I'm getting you out of danger move. Oh, good. You're up. Did you seriously just vervain me? Yep. Is this a hostage situation? Be mad all you want, just do it while you're looking at these. Hong Kong, yeah, that's really funny. Well, all that matters is that we get moving and we stay moving now. We? There's no such thing as we, Stefan. There hasn't been for a very long time. Fine, if you want to do this alone, that's your choice. Oh, how ironic, considering that the only reason I'm even here is that you decided to go all caveman and kidnap me against my will. This is not you. You usually respect people's choices. Yeah, until it comes to life and death, and then it's not up for discussion. There's always a choice. You gave Elena that choice. And then I lost her. Elena asked me to rescue her friend from the bottom of a river instead of her, and she died because I respected her damn choice. You know, maybe one day you'll wake up and realize that I deserve the same respect that she did. And so the nuance of that was a really tough thing to parse, where it's like in, in the bodice-ripping tradition, then like, you know, can't Stefan be a fucking alpha male for one protective hero move, and shouldn't we celebrate that? And yet, I mean, I was, you know... Uh, I was concerned. Um, and I think that ultimately we, I don't remember how we reached a compromise, but in the end, like, I think we softened some of what was, ha how the abduction yeah. was happening. The way that, you know, you pitch these things, you know, in the room, it's like you start off and the, the knee jerk reaction is like, well, he just, no, he breaks her neck and throws her over his shoulder and throws her into the trunk. He he snaps her neck. He just snaps her oh, neck. Shame. She's not pregnant anymore. He just snaps her neck and goes. <laughs> you know? Like, it's terrible. Well, this was also a flashback, or this was a flashback or a flash forward when, to when Caroline was not pregnant. So the character was not pregnant anymore. It was just, I happened to be physically pregnant. Yeah. Oh, correct. Yes. No, it was, in he was in danger, and you didn't yeah. want to leave yeah. him. And somehow, like... And so he, you know, he knocked you out and took you and like took you to this hotel room because, you know, everything sexy happens in a motel room by the road, you know, um, yeah, that's just right. the basic we rule. We of made it sexy. Television. Yeah. yeah. Very next scene is, is just one of those sterile scenes where they talk about feelings. And so mm -hmm. the abruptness of the transition from I'm going to take you out of our danger, you know, sort of like without even asking you if you want to. Um, and then just being like, but this is a romantic story. I think that whiplash is what we tried so hard to massage, knowing the problematic 
area that we're, we were in. And, and ultimately, I think we solved it. If we solved it, we mm-hmm. solved it with tone and just mm-hmm. like good direction and great performances mm-hmm. and understanding that like we are treading in these waters. Yeah. And yeah. I think Caroline chewed him out Makes for sense. it as she rightfully mm-hmm. should have. Like you fucking kidnapped me. Uh, but that's always just the bridge to like, well, why, why do you care so much that you would kidnap me? <laughs> we're, sl- we're sliding, sliding back toward problematic bodice ripping romance again, but you know, it did our best. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult line because it's, I feel like some of the appeal of vampire stories is that they're such passionate, you know, kind of overly kind of, I don't know, externalized feelings that people have and that you wish you could have this kind of amazing experience. And then, you know, meanwhile, your real life is not like that, but in the safe space of like vampire fiction, it's okay for people's hearts to get ripped out of their chests, literally. And it's okay for people to, to run off and do crazy things and be in a car accident and walk away and then talk about, you know, their childhood. (laughs) (laughs) If only real life were that simple <laughs> yeah there's not a lot of vampire folklore where it's like and then everyone like sat down and talked about their feelings and had really stable <laughs> and relationships yeah, yeah and quietly negotiated yeah. not like five came back the next day resumed may talk. i bite your neck and feed on you <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly can i please feed on you vampires are by definition <laughs> like predatory sexual beings you know and that was always the sort of heat and allure of the genre in a different time and so we started making this show when that heat was still palpable and still somehow acceptable to enough people I guess it's certainly you know that it it our society shifted underneath that I think The last thing I will just throw at you guys is you know the finale you're building toward whatever is in this vault. Did you know it was a siren in that? Or was were you just like creepy hands and we'll figure it out later? Mm-hmm. Somewhere between those two things, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that we didn't know the full visual of it. I remember um, we animated this hand for the Comic-Con t- teaser, the sizzle thing. And there were a lot of conversations like, oh. how long are the nails? Do we hear the, you know, is it blood dripping? Is it coming out of a vat? Is it just like by itself? And the grabs their faces and pulls them back. What's its power exactly? We suggested a lot of thing with that little sizzle, like it's four seconds of a monster animated thing. And it's very evocative and it's cool because we feel like our people are in jeopardy. But um, we, we knew it would be sexy. You know, I think we knew that it would be something that had to be so powerful and dangerous that they needed to lock it up in this weird cavern thing. And, um, you know, it was an opportunity to cast some really interesting actresses the following season and a different kind of sibling rivalry emerges. I should warn you doesn't always work out so great. Not a feeling. But don't worry. It's not as bad as you think. It only hurts at first. (laughs) And after that, it's kind of fun. Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, because I remember like when we shot it, you had to sort of we had to tell the boys to like, yeah, just like react like something really fucked up is is <laughs> is grabbing you because we had no idea. Yeah. Um, and then even with the creature, because we wanted something big and scary, and it was first our first foray into like creature effects because you know we never had monsters on mm. Vampire Diaries, and and then we kind of had to backfill 
when we really landed on the sirens, we had to backfill why the siren who would step out of that vat as Natalie Kelly would have those mm-hmm. claws, it, you know, in that in that little dark room. And so we we had right. to like kind of create that mythology that she was like being like essentially all the life sucked out of her and and living in that blood vat. But yeah, we mm-hmm. kind of we did backfill it a little. I think we knew sirens, but I don't think we knew how to make it work <laughs> until we got yeah. into the room for the next season. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, if I remember right, too, even before we were like, what's the creature? It was in service of at the end of season seven, what are we excited about that's launching us? And it was like Damon and Enzo off the rails and mm-hmm. literally saying, Stefan saying something like, Elena, don't worry about it. Anything Damon does from this point forward is not his fault and won't jeopardize his relationship with you. Like, we actually worked really hard to give season seven this, like, bow where it's like damon how damon acts in the absence of elena can he still be good without her basically he succeeds in that primarily with bonnie and then stefan's like oh but but he got possessed so like this doesn't count but hey mm-hmm. audience so what are you psyched about see, tune in to see damon. damon and enzo just fucking killing people and going back to a joyous sort of like murder spree that we remember Damon being in possession of from earlier seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that card, the magnetic cards on the dry race part. It just says Damon and Enzo off the rails. It was just yeah. there like the end of the finale. It just was sitting there by itself. There was a big white space above it. We knew that would be a final moment. And then it became, I, I remember coming into season eight, Julia was like, everybody needs to watch season one look at the pacing, look at the emotions. We're going to go back to basics for our, you know, bring it home season. And it was so satisfying to kind of feel like, okay, we're starting out mm-hmm. with a kind of classic two kids on the road, or there was a tent or it was very season one vibe. And then it turned into this whole other thing, but it was so cool. It was kind of like all the way along in season eight, this kind of like acknowledging where we'd come from. When did we, when did we yeah. ditch the malarkey as Enzo, as the other Salvatore brother pitch? Oh man. Oh, my gosh. I remember vividly. <laughs> it was gonna, he was going to be the third Salvatore brother. And um, all the conversations about introducing his character were kind of like, how do we get this kid who was left behind in the prison? And I think probably during the break of 509 was kind of what we realized the math just doesn't work out. You know, there are too many things get closed off to us. If we make him the third brother, also, where did he ever come from? <laughs> you know, and There's so much more opportunity for a guy who was just like almost like a wartime buddy, you know, like that kind of bonding of two fellow prisoners and that their friendship was like a brotherly bond, but not actually siblings so that we didn't have to do all of the kind of retrofitting. Um, so I'd say pretty early on in the in the five, yeah. fifth season, we kind of thought that would be so cool. But we, even we cannot pull that off. <laughs> Let's make him a cool guy. But we did manage to capture some of the spirit of that in the Enzo-Lily relationship because Lily, an actual Salvatore mother, Enzo had this weird, you know, psychosexual, you know, mom figure Mm -hmm. attraction to her that age-wise, you know, it doesn't register when you're in vampire world. But like, I do remember we sort of captured the spirit of why Enzo would be, you know, obsessed with a Salvatore mom and kind of got at it from a different way. Right, because she charmed him, as I remember, right? And that's why mm-hmm. they had this kind of, in a sense, he had an honorary sibling relationship. With they have, they have a kiss yeah. in season seven. There's that that moment, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no, you know. <laughs> no judgment here. Exactly. Uh, well, before, I mean, before we wrap up, does any anybody else have any other season seven thoughts? Has this conversation brought anything else up for you all? 
just the task that was at hand and how wonderful you guys all did as writers and, you know, just delivering storyline, storyline after storyline and not even just that, but like each episode having a hook that would always deliver into the next episode. I mean, seven years in that, that is incredible. So, I mean, the Mm -hmm. fact that you guys can even go back and remember all these big twists and turns from a writer's room so many years ago is impressive. So well done guys. (laughs) And I would, I guess say RIP Stefan's Porsche. Oh yes. I was pretty agnostic on the Porsche, but I know some people didn't like (laughs) it at all. That was devastating. And some people dearly loved it. I remember it being small. Am I right? Very was small. that the Granny Mobile? Yeah, Very it was just. Small. It looks great on screen, and then you put two tall guys in it. And you're like, wait a minute, we can't <laughs> get a camera in there. This thing is, this thing is vintage. <laughs> it ain't sexy. Nothing sexy about it in real life. It just looks sexy. Oh, incredible. All right. Well, thank you all so much for doing this. And for anyone watching or listening, we will be back to talk all things season eight.